The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. So let me ask you, how good are you at keeping a secret? When someone says, listen, I've got a secret, but you've just got to keep it to yourself. How good are you at that? I had someone say to me a while ago, listen, Darren, I am totally good at keeping a secret. It's the people I tell them to who aren't good at keeping secrets. Can I let you in on a secret? The mission of Broadway Church, now this is just between you and me. Don't tell anyone else. The mission of Broadway Church is to produce fully devoted followers of Jesus. That's not the secret. We all know that. We, we highlighted that last Sunday as well. But here's the thing. That's our mission. But do you know that, strictly speaking, we don't actually do our mission? Now, don't get me wrong. Fully devoted followers of Jesus are being produced at Broadway Church. But strictly speaking, we aren't the ones producing them. Strictly speaking, we don't have the power to produce a fully devoted follower of Jesus. We produce fully devoted followers in the same way that doctors produce healthy bodies. See, strictly speaking, a doctor doesn't actually heal a sick body. What a doctor does is a doctor places a sick body. Excuse me. I have a sick body right now, apparently. (laughs) A doctor places a sick body in the best position possible for that body to heal itself. If you think in these terms, when you break your arm, a doctor will then set the arm in place, set the broken bone together, but the bone itself has to do the mending. It's the body itself that does the work of healing. Well, in a similar way, we don't produce fully devoted followers of Jesus. We seek to place individuals in the best position possible for the Spirit of God to transform that person. It's the Spirit of God who does the work of transformation. Now, the Bible clearly teaches this. I've given you a couple passages on your outline this morning that you can follow along with. Look how the Apostle Paul describes this dynamic in the Bible. Paul wrote, we, speaking of Christ followers, he says, we're being transformed into the image, into his image, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who's the Spirit. So what Paul's saying is, listen, we're always being transformed, and and it's an ongoing thing. It's ever-increasing glory. It's not an instant thing. It's this increasing glory. What does the glory mean? It means with ever-increasing power, with ever-increasing perfection. We're ever-increasing in God's image being displayed and revealed through us. And all of this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. All of this meaning the, the whole process and the glory itself all comes from the Spirit of God. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, he says, we, speaking again of Christ followers, we know, not that we think or hope, we know that in all things, not in some things, not in most things, in all things, meaning in all circumstances, God works for the good of those who love him. That's incredible. It is God, by his spirit, who does the work of transformation within us. Okay, so how does God do this work? Is it divine magic? Meaning, does God just do it invisibly, automatically, in the blink of an eye? When you study the Bible, 
you'll soon see that transformation is not something that happens in an instant. Rather, transformation, as we just saw in the first passage we looked at, it's a gradual process, ever-increasing glory. Okay, so what's involved in this process then? I don't know about you, but I really want and need to know the answer to this question because I live in a frustrating place. My life is three steps forward, one or two steps back sometimes. I live in the middle of attention where some days I'm really doing well and other days you don't want to be around me. Some days I am so on fire for God and other days there's some embers that you really got to blow on to see them glow. Now you're probably much more spiritual and stable than I am, but that's my reality. I really want to know how I can be changed and transformed because I am tired of this tension. So how does transformation into the image of Jesus take place? What does it look like to follow Christ with a heart that is still prone to wander? These are the questions we're seeking to answer this summer at Broadway in a series we've entitled The Pursuit. It's a series dedicated to looking closely at the life of one of the most famous individuals in the Bible, David. Now, David was a guy who was prone to wander, yet nonetheless, he pursued God. Well, Darren, how do you know he was prone to wander? Because his footsteps were written down in the scripture. So we can follow his path, and we realize there were days that he was on top of things, and he was on fire for God, and writing powerful psalms. And there were other days his psalms were kind of depressing, because he was doing some things that weren't good, like, like having a, an immoral affair and trying to have the, the woman's husband killed so he could take her as his wife. I mean, David, as we learned last week, was a complex guy, and he was prone to wander. Okay, we know he was prone to wander. How do we know he had a heart for God that pursued God? Because God himself said so. In Acts chapter 13, verse 22, God testified concerning David, saying, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and he'll do everything I want him to do. Well, what does it mean to be after God's own heart? When you are living a life that's after God's own heart, three things we learned last week are true about you. You want to worship God, meaning it's something that comes from the inside out. It's not something that's imposed on you from the outside in. You must worship. You must come to church. You must read the Bible. No, it's not some outwardly imposed religious thing. It's an innate inside job. You want to worship God. You try to trust God. Meaning, you're doing your best to grow in your faith. You're doing your best to expand in your trust of God in your life. And thirdly, you plan to pursue God. That doesn't mean someday I want to follow God and pursue God. No, it means that you include God's presence in your daily life, in your plans, in your schedule, in your giving, and your time, talents, and your treasures. You want to worship God. You try to trust God. You plan to pursue God. Those are qualities and characteristics present in the life of someone who is after God's own heart. You're not perfect, but these are qualities that are true of you. Now, David was a man who, in spite of his wanderings, never lost his desire to worship, to trust, and to pursue. And when he did go off the rails, when he did lose the plot, he would repent. He would seek to return back to that original desire. And God himself declared that this heartfelt desire positioned David to be used by God. 
Now, last week, we looked at how God chooses a life. This week, we're looking at the next step in this process. Once God chooses to use someone, how does he then prepare that person he's chosen for service? How does God take a person from point A to point B? Now, we've just seen that it is God himself who transforms us, but how does God do this transformational work? If it isn't divine magic, if it isn't done automatically in the blink of an eye, how is it done? How does it happen? What kind of tools, what kind of techniques does God use to transform us and to prepare us for service? That's what we're going to spend the next 15, 20 minutes investigating. By studying the circumstances surrounding God's activity in the life of David. Now, we're picking up the story where we left it off last week, if you're with us or if you watched the podcast. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, 1 Samuel chapter 16, when we concluded last week, the prophet Samuel had just anointed young David to be the next king of Israel. Anointed meaning the symbolic uh, passing on of the baton. But here's the thing we need to remember. This anointing, this appointing was done in secret. As we pick up the story, no one else apart from Samuel and David's immediate family knows that this has happened. At this point, David has been chosen as the next king, but Saul is still on the throne. Apparently, David is right for the job, but he isn't yet ripe for the job. He's right for the job, but he isn't yet ready for the job. And in the next few verses, we're going to see some of the tools and techniques that God uses to prepare someone for service in his kingdom. So we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting at verse 14. And by the way, right off the top, let me say we're about to bump up against one of the most awkward passages of Scripture in the Bible. I'll show you what I mean. You'll see it right away. Verse 14 of 1 Samuel 16. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. What's up with that? Keep reading. We'll learn in a moment. Saul's attendants said to him, see, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Uh, Let our Lord, meaning Saul, command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. That's a harp. He'll play when the evil spirit from God comes on you and you'll feel better. By the way, that's a testimony for the power of worship in your life. When you're feeling down, distracted, worship has a powerful influence in your spirit, on your heart, in your mind. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and he's a fine looking man and the Lord is with him. So then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David who's with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them with his son David to Saul. So he sends David with some supplies. David came to Saul and entered his uh, service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers, that is, one of his workers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I'm pleased with him. 
And whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his harp and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. Now, in this strange passage, we see the first tool in God's transformational toolkit, a tool that we've actually already interacted with in this series. That is his sovereignty. God's sovereignty is the first transformational tool that God uses to prepare a person. See, King Saul had long been living in disobedience to God. And after years of warning and waiting, God finally removes his spirit from Saul. God removes his divine protection from Saul's life. And as a result, Saul was apparently experiencing some form of demonic harassment. Now, this appears to be not full-blown possession. It appears to have been a condition that would come and go. And something that would seem to help when Saul was feeling agitated was the soothing strains of a harp. So the call went out across the kingdom for someone who could play a mean harp. And that's where David and the sovereignty of God comes in. Remember the verse we read a few moments ago? It's on your outline, Romans 8. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called or chosen according to his purpose. When God sees a heart that is open to him, when God sees a heart that is pursuing him, God sovereignly arranges circumstances to bring about God's desired results. As your outline says, just like God sees beneath the surface, God also works behind the scenes. Just like God sees beneath the surface, God's also working behind the scenes. It's been said that at the most, we are, there's only six degrees of separation from any two human beings on the planet. Six degrees, meaning... You know someone who knows 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 President Trump. (laughs) Or the Queen of England, or insert name here. You know, there's only at the most six degrees of separation between any two individuals on the planet. This is exactly the dynamic that God used in David's life 3,000 years ago. Saul had a situation that required someone who was good at playing the harp. And one of Saul's employees says, hey, I know a guy who's a good harpist. His name's David. His dad's name's Jesse. He, in fact, he's from Bethlehem, not far from here. And God used that connection to bring David right into the king's palace. God used that connection to allow the secretly appointed future king to live and work with the unsuspecting present king. This arrangement allowed David to study up close and personal what being the king of Israel would involve. This arrangement allowed David to take notes while he was playing notes. See what I did there? That was pretty good. Come on, admit that. That's pretty good. No, it's too late. It's too late. I work hard for you people. Now, we can't move on from this passage without addressing the proverbial elephant in the room. What exactly is verse 14 saying here? Now, the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. What's up with that? Does God have spirits that are evil? 
Now, scripture, scripture is quite clear regarding the nature of God. The Bible says that God is holy. The Bible says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness whatsoever. So then, what does this verse mean? This is an example of what's called a Jewish idiom, meaning it's a poetic device used by ancient speakers, ancient writers, ancient thinkers. It was a bit of a a mental shortcut, if you can think in those terms. It worked this way. Yes, years ago, like now, they understood that, strictly speaking, the evil spirit did not come directly from God. Yes, they understood that, strictly speaking, it was the devil who sent the evil spirit. But they also recognized that, ultimately, because God is sovereign, ultimately God allowed this to happen. So in their description of the event, they just would kind of make a a shortcut. They would cut out the middleman and just call it an evil spirit from the Lord. There's an old story of an elderly lady. She was uh, uh, very very poor, and she was coming to the end of the the month when her, 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 her check, her government assistance was running out, and she had nothing left in her cupboards. And she was praying in her kitchen, and her kitchen window was open. And there were some local neighborhood little kids in the summer holidays playing outside of her kitchen window, and they heard her praying. And they were always making fun of her faith. And they heard her praying, and she said, oh, God, please, I need your provision. I need you to help me. I have no bread. I have no milk. I have no meat. I need your provision in my life. And they heard this, and they thought, let's play a joke on old lady Jones. And so they each went into their homes and without their parents knowing, they snuck some bread, some meat, some milk out of their own cupboards. They put it all in a bag. They snuck up on her front porch. They put it on her front porch. They rang her doorbell and knocked on her door and they ran and hid in the bushes. Dear elderly lady Jones opens the front door and she looks in the bag and she calls out, oh God, thank you. Thank you, God, you've heard my prayer. The kids jump out of the bushes. No, 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 old lady Jones. God didn't do this, we did this. And she said, the devil may have brought it, but the Lord sent it. And that's the similar dynamic to how they saw Saul's situation 3,000 years ago. The devil may have brought it, but the Lord ultimately sent it. Okay, so how does God prepare a life that he chooses to use? How does God prepare a heart that he sees is pursuing him? Well, the first tool in God's transformational toolkit is his sovereignty. Just like God sees beneath the surface, God works behind the scenes. God knows our thoughts before we think them. God knows our deeds before we do them. And God uses this knowledge to place us in situations that further his purposes in our lives and in his world. By the way, this is more than a theological exercise. Do you realize what this means? Do you realize how much pressure this removes from your life? As you're sitting there right now, this should bring great encouragement, great peace to your heart. Listen, you don't have to try to manipulate people to get ahead. You don't have to try to orchestrate events to succeed in life. 
You don't have to worry about making things happen in life. Oh, I'm not saying you don't try. You still work hard and do your best. But when you pursue the heart of God, you don't have to do these things in order to manipulate things because as a follower of Jesus Christ, you can know that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purposes. As your outline says, you keep moving your heart towards him and he'll keep moving the circumstances towards you. You keep moving your heart towards him and he'll keep moving the circumstances towards you. Folks, how would your experience of life change if from this moment forward, circle this moment in your calendar, how would your experience of life change if from this moment on you saw every circumstance in your life as having been allowed by God? I didn't say caused. I said allowed by God. How would your attitude towards your circumstances change if you understood that God sees them, God knows about them, and God is determined that he can use them for his glory? When you're pursuing God, God is working on your behalf. You keep moving your heart towards him, and he'll keep moving the circumstances towards you. Okay, let's quickly touch on the second major tool in God's preparation toolkit. We've just seen how God uses his sovereignty as a transformational tool, but today's passage also teaches that God uses the tool of our service as well. God uses his sovereignty and God uses our service to prepare us and to bring transformation in our lives. Now, in today's passage... There's a key to success in David's life that can easily be overlooked because it's kind of tucked away in here. It's there in verse 19. It says, Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse, that's David's dad, and said, Send me your son David who is with the sheep. It's that last part of that last phrase that's key. Send me your son David who is with the sheep. It appears that up until this point, that David has spent most of his life with sheep. Now, we've romanticized this idea of a shepherd. We see shepherds portrayed with glowing faces in clean, pressed outfits, politely kneeling around a tidy, neatly swept manger at Christmas time. When we think shepherd, we think friendly young people with cuddly sheep. We need to think again, folks. 3,000 years ago, shepherds were at the lowest rung of the social ladder. In this verse, we have the two extremes when it comes to social status in Israel. You've got the shepherd at one extreme, and you've got the king at the other extreme. I'm just going to say it. Shepherds stunk. Okay, they stunk. You likely smelled a shepherd before you saw the shepherd. With my apologies to any shepherds who were in the service this morning. Of course they stunk. They spent weeks alone in the wilderness without showers and with stinky, stupid animals. Sheep are stupid. Now, shepherds weren't known for their conversational skills and their their witty uh, insights either. Shepherds weren't up on current events. Shepherds had a narrow bandwidth is what they needed to know. They're good at what they did, but they basically just knew what they needed to know. 
Being a shepherd wasn't a job that many people aspired to. There was a reason why Jesse, the the youngest son of Jesse, had been appointed to be the shepherd. It's not something anyone with seniority would, would choose. All right, Bobby Joe, you're the oldest of my children. Which job would you like? Well, I want to be the shepherd. No, they wouldn't say that. Nonetheless, when King Saul called upon him, a shepherd is what David was. As we learned last week, God's choices are always sovereign and they're sometimes surprising because God sees what you and I can't see. So what did God see when he looked upon those fields surrounding Bethlehem? God saw that David was willing to serve God saw that David was willing to serve in obscurity. God saw that David was willing to serve in absolute solitude. God saw that David was a man after his own heart. In those lonely fields, God saw a young man being prepared. In the darkness of obscurity, God saw a young life being transformed. And as your outline says, God was using David's present willingness to prepare him for future greatness. God was using David's present willingness to serve to prepare him for future greatness. Now, I've been to Bethlehem many times in that area around Bethlehem many times over the years. And by the way, you can join me next time. March 2020, we're going to take another tour. Come with me. Let's tour Bethlehem together or the region around it. I've driven through the fields where David wandered. Even today, it's a barren landscape, rolling hills of rock with small plants and grasses sprouting up here and there. That's an actual picture of the the, the landscape right around outside Bethlehem. It's not a glamorous place, but against this backdrop, God was transforming his servant. Against this backdrop, God was preparing a king. David learned humility through his service. David learned to hear God's voice in that solitude. And David learned to play an instrument while alone with those sheep. And in his sovereignty, God used all of this to prepare David for his ultimate task. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I headed back to Ontario. We're from southern Ontario to participate in a wedding and to visit my parents and to visit her parents. And uh, Jan's parents live up in the Bruce Peninsula, if you're familiar with, uh, with uh, Ontario at all, up Lion's Head, the, near the northern tip of Bruce Peninsula, a narrow finger of land uh, with the Georgian Bay on one side and Lake Huron on the other side. It's beautiful territory, but this is actual picture, uh, right, uh, the fields outside of my in-law's home. They live in the top of a hill up from the water with just a, a, a couple houses around them, and they live right on the edge, and then there's just open farmer's fields for as far as you can see. Well, I was out, you know, we spent a few days there, and uh, I would spend the days often uh, wandering out or amongst these fields by myself. I'd have my headphones on and uh, be listening to, to, to music, and I was out walking in this farmer's field, and it occurred to me, as I had the music blaring in my ears, I was listening to some Chris Tomlin, and, uh, and I was out there, I thought, hey, this is unusual. Like, nobody can hear me. I'm in the middle of nowhere. And never in life am I in the middle of nowhere. When we live in the lower mainland here, there's always somebody around. Even in the middle of Stanley Park, there's somebody somewhere around you. And so I thought to myself, this is a neat opportunity. 
So as I'm walking out on this path in the middle of this field, in the middle of nowhere, I just started to belt out of the top of my lungs singing along with Chris Tomlin on my headphones. It felt good. Have you ever done that? Just sing out as loud as you can. Some of you shouldn't. But anyway, just all of you should. Just at the top of my lungs, literally, I just belted it out. It did my soul good. I thought, this is great. Nobody can hear me. Except a couple of days ago, my wife said, oh, by the way, Darren, the lady across the street from my parents said, oh, I heard your husband singing out there. (laughs) When you think no one's watching, someone is. As you sit here today, you may be feeling like you have a lot in common with young David. Maybe you're here and you feel like you're working away in obscurity. You feel like no one's watching, no one's listening. You feel like God has you in a tiny cubicle tucked away in a basement office, unknown, irrelevant. You feel underappreciated and overlooked. Hear this lesson from the life of David. No act of service done in humility is meaningless. Every deed done for God's glory has eternal value and eternal implications. God is preparing you for your next thing by growing you in your present thing. You can't reach your next level without first walking through your present level. I've got this simple little barbell that's five pounds. You got this thing and you do this. There. What a completely insignificant act, right? Just, it's nothing. But when you do this continually, one after another, after another, after another, over time, a transformation takes place in your arm. Acts of service are like exercises. When you string exercises together, you build muscle. When you string acts of service together, you build character. When you string exercises together, you build muscle. When you string acts of service together, you build character. That's what God did with David. That's what God has done with people for centuries. And that's what God is wanting to do with you. Are you living a life of service? Are you a spectator in the church of Jesus Christ or are you an active participate, participant in the church of Jesus Christ? Is your name on a team of volunteers somewhere? Are you actively serving God somehow? There's an old saying, you can't steer a parked car. The car has to be moving for you to direct it. Well, one of the tools God uses to prepare and transform a life is our service. Your life has got to be moving forward. Yes, God sovereignly uses circumstances in your life, but he also uses our service. You've got to be moving forward, serving. You can't steer a parked car. You've got to show up if you want to grow up. So let's conclude. Followers of Jesus live in the middle of attention. We love God But truth be told, when we're honest, our hearts are still prone to wander. God sees our hearts, and he honors a heart that wants to worship him, that tries to trust him, that plans to pursue him. So is that you? 
Like David, are you pursuing the heart of God? If so, know that God has a destiny for life, your life. Know that God has a desired future for your life waiting for you to experience. God has divine appointments for you to meet and eternal victories for you to win. Now, I realize that many people, when they hear something like this, they get uptight, they get stressed, they get nervous, they get fearful, they get fretful. I don't want to miss out on what God has for me. How can I know where God wants me to be? I I, I want to be ready for everything that God has waiting for me. How can I know what God wants me to do? Today we've learned that we don't need to fret over such things. Today we've learned that the God that has chosen you is the same God that will prepare you. Which brings us to today's big idea where we summarize the teaching in one simple sentence. Here's today's big idea. Your task is to offer your heart. God's task is to transform it. Your task is to offer your heart. God's task is to transform it. See, it's simple. You pursue him and he'll change you. Your task is to offer your heart. God's task is to transform it. You focus upon following him and he'll focus on directing you. Your task is to offer your heart. His task is to transform it. So you simply serve him today and he'll take care of preparing you for tomorrow.